From APM, American Public Media, this is the American Radio Works podcast. I'm Stephen Smith. A lot of parents worry about whether video games are wrecking their kids' brains, especially when gaming gets in the way of homework or reading. But USA Today education writer Greg Tapo says gaming is a great way to learn and may help improve America's underperforming schools. His new book is The Game Believes in You, How Digital Play Can Make Our Kids Smarter. He joins us from Washington, D.C. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, you write that our schools are fighting a losing battle with boredom. Is it what kids are being taught or is it how they're being taught that is producing this boredom? I think it's mostly how they're being taught. Um, I think the way kids experience the world now is sort of different than it was when we were kids. Um, They have access to more. They have access to things more quickly. And school is just sort of running to keep up in a way. How can games break this cycle of boredom? Well, I, I think games basically do one thing really, really well. And that is they give kids access to material sort of unfettered in a quick, very no-fuss fashion. Um, That's really what school should be about, about giving kids access to the material we want them to learn and allowing them to play with it, to experiment with it, to find out what it's about, to find out what they can do, and if they fail, to sort of pick themselves up and try it again. I think it's likely that most adults uh, of this generation don't really have a good, clear idea of what kind of games you're talking about. I mean, are we talking about war games, games where you build things, games where you chase stuff? I mean, most of the games that I talk about in the book have been specifically designed to uh, present material, that you, the kind of material you would experience in school. So whether it's math or history um, or you know, science— these are the kinds of games that I'm mostly talking about. Explain how a well-designed game gets kids to learn more effectively, especially in, in this realm that you describe as being systems thinking. What is systems thinking and, and why is it good in terms of, of helping kids to learn? Essentially, what system thinking is about is asking the user uh, to think about what they're doing as uh, you know, a, a built system. Um, the the best example that I can think of that I think a lot of people might be familiar with is actually a pretty old game, um, the Oregon Trail. Um, you know, when you logged onto the Oregon Trail, one of the first things it asked you, and we're, we're going back now, you know, 30, 40 years. Yeah, that's an old one. One of the first things it asked you was, how do you want to eat while you're playing this game? Mm. Do you want to eat well? Do you want to eat poorly? Sort of in the in between. And what it did, that very kind of simple question asked you to consider, hmm, you know, what happens when I choose one over the other? What does it mean to eat well as opposed to, you know, not eating too well? And you, you immediately, even if you're 12 years old, you, you can start to see, well, huh, maybe if I don't eat well, it'll be cheaper, but I guess I won't be as healthy um, and so it really, it, it, in a very kind of no-fuss way, it takes you down a kind of a different logical path than I think most kids experience in school. And I think that's pretty exciting. You went to some schools that use games as an essential part of the curriculum. Can you tell us about one of them? Well, the one that I spent a lot of time in that uses it as, 
is a key part of the curriculum is a school, sort of an experimental public school in New York City called Quest to Learn. And I, uh, it's, been, it's been around for about, I think, five or six years now. It'll actually be graduating its first high school class in another year. And it's actually built around a lot of the ideas that I talk about in the book. Um, interestingly enough, though, it's, it's, it's become, in a lot of people's imagination, sort of the video game school. But when you spend some time there, you realize that most of the games that they're exposing students to are actually not digital games. A lot of paper-based games, a lot of uh, games on cardboard, a lot of sort of you know role-playing games, and a lot of um, building. I guess what you might call making at this point. Um, and essentially, what they're trying to do is get their students to think about you know how to create projects that are built around their interests and what you know what are the problems you have to solve. If you want to get from point A to point B, one of the things I do in the chapter about Quest to Learn, I give it pretty much a whole chapter, is I talk about a, a basketball game that seventh graders created. Um, and it's essentially a basketball variation, kind of a crazy, sweaty uh, you know, conglomeration of basketball and football and soccer that they came up with over the course of a week. And, you know, you talk about systems thinking, this this game really forced them to think, like, what are the systems that are at work in sports? And, you know, how can we combine one with another in a way that makes it better, not more confusing or worse? And this was a real physical three-dimensional game where they, that they yeah, played. Yeah, this was play, played in the gym, yeah. And, and it was, it was high, I should say, a highly amusing game. <laughs> because it was kind of... Um what, uh, complicated enough that only a few people could understand it? I, well, you got, you know, as an observer, as a spectator, you got it immediately. You just never knew what form the game would take from moment to moment. You know, somebody could be going up for a layup at the basket, and then next thing you knew, they were tossing a touchdown pass. And so it just sort of shifted gears very quickly. What is the job of a teacher in a uh, classroom that has, that's sort of gaming-enhanced either a teacher who's working with some of these paper games you describe or working with uh, electronic games? Yeah, I actually don't think it, the, the role of the teacher changes that much. I mean, I think one of, the, one of the things that I think does change a little bit is the idea that you have to step back just a bit and let your students be in control a little bit more. Um, but I think, you know, if you ask most teachers whether that is a good thing, I would think they would say yes. Um, I talked to a, a, a social studies teacher in Minnesota who that was the thing he was looking for. You know, he felt like he was putting so much out and getting so little back from his students in return when he created the game that eventually became uh, something called um, Fantasy Geopolitics. He loved this moment when the students took control of the material and he could, and he even says, you know, I just kind of stepped back and became a little smaller part of the the whole uh, classroom dynamic, and he loved that because this, essentially the students were driving the conversation. Now, it would seem that play and gaming are things that, as a species, we've been doing for a long time, and we've used games and, and playfulness to, to learn as a species for a long time. How did we get away from that in the, in the school system? Well, I think we had this idea that we had to be more sort of serious, um, that school couldn't be fun. There's this sort of 
way in which we feel like fun is somehow sort of suspicious. <laughs> um, and But when we think about the sort of the moments just as, as people, you know, either kids or adults, when we're learning something, we really are having a kind of fun. It's not a kind of a ha-ha, everything is amazing fun. It's a, it's just an absorption. It's a, it's, it's a kind of, a, it's something that game designers would call flow, where our abilities are sort of perfectly matching the task at hand. And I think, if, you know, if we step back a little bit, I think we'd, we'd realize, we'd remember that those kinds of experiences are fun. They're just fun in a different way than we normally think of the word fun. Now, in your book, you have advice for parents on the amount and type of screen time that kids should have when not in school. Can you uh, summarize what your tips are? Sure. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, it's interesting because I think the the research on this is kind of turning a corner in a way. Um, you know, going back maybe a decade ago, you know, you would have had the American Academy of Pediatrics say, you know, no screens for kids under two. And I think there are some people who are kind of rethinking that um, just because so many kids and parents are having really wonderful experiences with things like iPads, you know, interactive screens. And that's different. I mean, the experience you might have on your mother's lap reading a book on an iPad is very different than, you know, sitting in front of, even in front of a PC or watching TV together. So that's one thing. That's changing a bit. In terms of time, I mean, what a lot of people uh, who are in this field talk about is, mm, I would say maybe a if your kid is spending two hours or more a day on games during summer vacation, um, you should start thinking about what else they could be doing and, you know, what other sort of attractive activities they could be participating in. And I would say that's probably reasonable. I mean, one of the things that I talk about in the book is this idea that, you know, we, we like as adults to use terms like addiction. And even when I talk to adults about their own gaming habits, you know, they say, oh my God, that game is addictive. I'm so, you know, I'm addicted to that game. And the thing that I'm trying to do through this book is to say, maybe we need a different word. Um, addiction is actually a clinical term that means something different. Let's talk a little bit about the qualities of that experience. What's happening when we're playing a game? And I, I, I would submit that we should just use terms like, you know, my kid likes this game quite a bit because it responds to him in a way that a lot of things in his life don't. He gets, you know, a great deal of satisfaction out of that. It's a it's a sort of a, a fairer world, it's a known world, and it's a really hard, very sometimes competitive world that really, you know, puts him at the top of his game. So let's talk about those qualities first. And if a game, a video game, is the only thing that is scratching that itch, you shouldn't think about necessarily about what's wrong with the game. You should think, hmm, is there something else they could be doing that is as satisfying as that in their day? Are there any particular games that you really love, either as an observer of others who are using it for education or uh, as a participant yourself? Sure. I mean, one of the games that I have been really having fun with, and, and when I describe it to to people, they really are kind of astounded by it, is a math game called Dragon Box. And this is by a French designer. And Essentially, one of the one of the sort of the nicknames that has kind of been attached to it is algebra for preschoolers, and it really does take the user of whatever age through very basic baby steps of um, learning to think algebraically. 
I really like the design of it. It's such a beautiful game, and it's and it doesn't uh, force the player into you know doing math. It really is quite a beautiful, uh, beautifully designed game and kind of a fun experience. Also, in the book, I talk about um, a series of games called iCivics, which are essentially civics and uh, history lessons inspired by uh, retired Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who, when she retired from the bench a few years ago, got very concerned that people didn't know much about the government or about the Constitution. And she eventually got a Madison, Wisconsin game design firm interested in creating what are now about 20 games. And they're really just wonderfully designed, very fun, free, by the way, and really do a great job of teaching things like you know, what are the amendments of the Constitution? How do the courts work? Things like that. Greg Topo is an education writer for USA Today and the author of The Game Believes in You, How Digital Play Can Make Our Kids Smarter. Thanks so much. Thank you. A note of disclosure, Greg was a Spencer Foundation fellow at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. The foundation also supports American Radio Works. You can find a link to Greg Tapo's work at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. There you will find more podcasts about issues in K-12 and higher education, and you can browse the archive of more than 100 documentary projects. Please also let us know what you think of our coverage. That's AmericanRadioWorks.org. We're on Facebook at America.RadioWorks and on Twitter at AM RadioWorks. Support for American Radio Works comes from the Spencer Foundation, Lumina Foundation, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM, American Public Media.